arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. All right, I want to talk some science in our second segment today, and I think I'm going to start out with the toughest article that uh, I have in the pile. We've taken a somewhat skeptical view about numerous things scientific on this program. We're not too crazy about string theory, for example. We had a chance to chat with Michelle Feynman, the daughter of the late great physicist Richard Feynman, a few years back. And uh, we liked Richard Feynman's quote about string theory, which was that string theory, that string theorists don't make predictions, they make excuses. Of course, if you are doing good science, you should be able to predict something that you then find out to actually be true. A lot of folks are pretty excited about these particle accelerators they want to build over in Europe and here in America. And uh, relating to the research done at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Geneva, and apparently in this case, with the help, with some help from the Italian National Institute of Nuclear Physics, Gran Sasso National Laboratory. We have the following reporting in the LA Times from Thomas H. Mock II. I think I'll quote from it. For the first time, physicists have confirmed that certain subatomic particles have mass, and that they could account for a large proportion of the matter in the universe, the so-called dark matter that astrophysicists know is there, but they cannot be observed by conventional means. The finding concerns the behavior of neutrinos, ghost-like particles that travel at the speed of light. In the new experiment, physicists captured a muon neutrino in the process of transforming into a tau neutrino. Now, if, you, uh, if you're into this sort of stuff, you know that these various neutrinos are kind of related to electrons of the same name. Electrons, muons, tau particles which, if I understand it correctly, represent different particles of different energy states. I read on. Researchers had strongly believed that such transformations occur because they've been able to observe the disappearance of muon neutrinos in a variety of experiments. But the research announced Monday marks the first time the appearance of tau neutrinos had been directly observed. The article quoted CERN director Rolf Heuer saying, this is an important step for neutrino physics. We're all looking forward to the to we're all looking forward to unveiling the new physics this result presages. Now neutrinos interact with matter so weakly they can travel through the entire planet Earth with the ease of a light beam traveling through a window pane. Physicists generally don't see neutrinos, but they observe the debris left behind from the very rare occasions when a neutrino strikes an atom head on. Now, according to physicists, if these neutrinos have no mass, they can't oscillate between these muon and tau forms. And the fact that they do oscillate thusly indicates that they have some mass, that the fundamentals of the standard model of physics need some reworking at the very least. And of course, these particles, which are produced in the gazillions, mean that collectively, if they have just a little dinky portion of mass, well, it could, could amount to most of the mass in the universe. You know, I, I got to say, this is interesting stuff, but, but I do have to share Dave Barry's view about some of this. Dave sort of pictured a bunch of guys sitting around CERN with a pitcher of daiquiris, maybe a couple of bottles of schnapps thrown in, saying like, hey, did you see that particle? Oh, there went one now! Too much cackling and hilarity. 
But I have to admit, I'm a little over my head on this one. If you're a physicist and you think you can explain this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and we'll bring you on and talk about this stuff. And you know what? I'll even throw in a picture of daiquiris. All right, some research done here at UC Davis. Apparently, uh, researchers are using some genetic engineering to help tobacco plants produce vaccines. So it's very valuable because a lot of vaccines are produced using chicken eggs. If you can find a way to produce it more cheaply using a tobacco plant, well, this could be quite a boon to mankind. Apparently a, a team in Serigen won a $15,000 grand prize for a competition to, uh, to succeed in this area. They were able to, uh, to coax some bacteria to produce the vaccine they wanted and then introduced the DNA from that bacteria into the tobacco plant and basically used, turned the tobacco plant into a factory. And no, it didn't have to be a tobacco plant, but tobacco is a plant that's hardy and well understood and cultivated around the world. I suppose an added benefit of this may be they can turn uh, tobacco from being the most addicting, deadly substance on the planet into something that actually saves lives. And of course, while it's at it, preserve the subsidies in places like Kentucky. And, uh, you know, if, if you took part in this research and want to help spread the word, we're, uh, we're open to do so. You can drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We will not, however, be offering a pack of smokes for that discussion. All right, we talked with uh, a couple people about some bad astronomy in the past, both Michael Shermer, the skeptic uh, columnist for the Scientific American, and Phil Plate, who runs the badastronomy.com website. New Scientist magazine has an excellent article by Michael Shermer about deniers, which we won't get into on today's program. But those who would deny that we've gone to the moon uh, suffered a blow last week. Yes, apparently last March, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spotted the Lunokhod 1, the Russian rover which the Soviet Union landed on the moon in 1970. It had a reflector on its back, but uh, the lasers from Earth couldn't target it as they didn't know its exact location. Once it was spotted from orbit, researchers from the University of San Diego fired a laser at the new coordinates and got a reflected signal back. The Apollo astronauts, of course, left three reflectors on the moon, but this new uh, Soviet uh, reflector is closer to the edge of the moon than the others, and that makes it more useful for measuring the slight wobbles in the moon's orientation, which might help us reveal the moon's internal structure a little bit better. And uh, when I say edge of the moon, I'm referring to the uh, either side as seen from the Earth. The moon, of course, presents the same face to the Earth, but there's a slight wobble back and forth, because the syncing up of its rotation speed and it's speeding up uh, as it gets closer and further from the Earth, um, while they're not exactly in sync, of course. Sometimes it turns a little faster, sometimes a little slower, and that's why from our observation point here on the Earth, we can actually see 59% of the lunar surface. Now, there's been some research at UC Davis that's speculating on the fact that salt may not be as, uh, as deadly as we've often thought in medicine. But there's a provocative uh, piece, an opinion piece, in the May 1st New Scientist, which says that excess dietary salt is a killer, and you should take any evidence to the contrary with a very large pinch of the stuff. Opinion piece by Franco Capuccio and Simon Capewell said that salt hidden in food kills millions of people worldwide. 
They added that reducing dietary salt is therefore important to public health. It is also one of the cheapest and easiest ways to save lives. So why are efforts to cut dietary salt being met with fierce resistance? According to the authors, well, first the facts. Decreasing salt intake substantially reduces blood pressure, thus lowering the risk of heart attacks and strokes. They claim it's on par with the public health benefits of reducing cholesterol and stopping smoking. As a doctor, I'd say cholesterol, yes. Smoking, I don't think so. The authors claim that the amount of salt we take in in our diet is about six times what the body actually needs. And that here in the U.S., guidelines are being updated and the 2010 version is widely expected to recommend a lower salt intake, something more on the level of perhaps three grams a day. The current recommendation is that we limit our salt intake to five grams a day. We Americans, by the way, average about... 10 grams a day, twice the recommended limit. Noted the authors of the piece, salt is added to make food more palatable, to increase the water content of meat products, and to increase thirst. All generate profit for the food and drink industry. They noted that earlier this month, the U.S. Institute of Medicine recommended government intervention to reduce salt intake. However, the food industry is fighting a bitter rearguard action against any such move. The salt industry's annual turnover is several billion dollars and it has no plans to downsize. Thus, in advance of the new U.S. guidelines, articles appeared in the New York Times and elsewhere claiming that the evidence for reducing salt is not clear-cut. According to the authors, this controversy is fake. The evidence for salt reduction is clear and consistent. Most of the contradictory research comes from a very small number of scientists, most of whom are linked to the salt industry. However, it takes skill to spot misinformation and subterfuge, and so the confusion is successfully promulgated. They go on to draw comparisons to how the tobacco industry spent decades denying that smoking caused fatal disease. I don't know. I'd like to, again, hear from some local scientists, and I know there are a few that have looked into this. Please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com, and we'll supply the beer, just no pretzels. And it appears that our uh, denunciation of Discover Magazine some time back probably was a little bit premature. They are producing some uh, good pieces, including an article by Douglas Fox in the current issue of Discover, writing about the research of psychiatrist Fuller Torrey. The article starts out by noting that schizophrenia has long been blamed on bad genes or bad parents. Notes that that is wrong, according to Fuller Torrey. The real culprit is a virus that lives entwined in all of our DNA. The article starts by talking about identical twins, Stephen and David Elmore. They were born four minutes apart, and David came home from the hospital after a week. Stephen, however, had to stay behind in the ICU. For a month, he hovered near death in an incubator, racked with fever from what doctors called a dangerous viral infection. Apparently, Stephen lagged behind David during childhood, but by the time they got into grade school, it appeared that, uh, that Stephen had caught up. They seemed to have equalized into the genetic carbon copies that they were. Then, at age 17, Stephen began hearing voices. The article notes that his nerves frayed and he broke down, and within weeks, his outburst landed him in a psychiatric hospital where they diagnosed him as having schizophrenia which the article notes is the one of the most common mental diseases on earth, affecting about 1% of humanity. The article notes that schizophrenia is usually diagnosed between the ages of 15 and 25, 
but the person who becomes schizophrenic is sometimes recalled to have been different as a child or toddler, more forgetful or shy or clumsy. Studies of family videos confirm this. Even more puzzling is the birth month effect. People born in winter or early spring are more likely than others to become schizophrenic later in life. It's a small increase, just 5 to 8%, but it's remarkably consistent, showing up in 250 different studies. The same pattern is seen, by the way, in people with bipolar disorder or multiple sclerosis. Since certain viral illnesses are seasonal, scientists are beginning to suspect that um, schizophrenia does not begin as a psychological disease, but begins with an infection. article talks about how, psych- how psychiatrist Fuller Torrey got interested in schizophrenia when his uh, sister was afflicted. He uh, finished his training in psychiatric medicine in 1970 at the NIH. And he observed at that time that uh, schizophrenics suffered from more than just mental disturbances. They often had trouble doing standard inebriation tests, like walking a straight line heel to toe. They also had some unusual markers in their blood. Certain white blood cells had uh, lymphocytes, the kind that are known to us from HIV now so well, uh, were odd-looking in many cases, the kind uh, you find in mononucleosis. CT scans showed that schizophrenic brains had less tissue and larger fluid-filled ventricles. Ventricles are those areas in your brain that are filled with uh, cerebrospinal fluid. Further research showed that schizophrenics tended to carry antibodies for toxoplasma, a parasite spread by house cats, Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mononucleosis, and a virus called cytomegalovirus. These people had clearly been exposed to those infections at some point, but they never found the pathogens themselves in the patients. Speaking of HIV, which is a retrovirus, um, it works by reversing RNA, which carries its genetic material, back into DNA, which can get incorporated into human cells. Normally in our cells, DNA makes RNA, which directs other things. Thanks to an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, uh, the viruses are able to reverse this flow. As we talked about in this program in the past, it turns out that a lot of what makes us up genetically apparently came from things like viruses. If you study genetics, you'll be told that uh, 5% of our DNA seems to code for different proteins and that to 95% of it, well, we're not sure what it's doing. We now know that at least some of that is making RNA, which is uh, directing cellular activity in our, in, our, in our body cells. This is kind of some esoteric research, but they have determined that over the past, say, 100 million years, they're estimating that maybe 50 times retroviruses have gotten into our genome and basically you know, reversed the virus's material and gotten into us where it has stayed. According to this article, we lug around about 100,000 retrovirus sequences inside of us. All told, genetic parasites related to viruses account for 40% of all human DNA, which is pretty eye-opening. For the most part, our body tries to silence these viral stowaways, but uh, sometimes they slip out. And apparently one way they can slip out is to have the body under attack from other microbes, like the previously mentioned Epstein-Barr virus, mononucleosis, or toxoplasmosis, which if you're struck, as apparently Stephen Elmore was early in life by uh, a virus, 
that it can, in essence, reawaken this hidden DNA to cause some damage. It's a very interesting theory with some good evidence behind it. As the article notes, this process explains why schizophrenics gradually lose brain tissue. It explains why the disease waxes and wanes like a chronic infection. And it could explain why some schizophrenics suffer their first psychosis after a mysterious mono-like illness. So what's this mean? Well, perhaps better prenatal care or some vaccinations might prevent that first early infection that puts some people on a path to schizophrenia. Anyway, curious article. I believe it probably is online at discovermagazine.com. You may want to check it out. And speaking of human genetics, and I guess we were, genetic studies in the bones of Neanderthals indicate that uh, between 1% and 4% of the human genome comes from Neanderthals. And yes, I'm sure the women in the audience would probably argue that it's considerably higher than that. But this seems to prove what a lot of people have said for years. The Neanderthals are not totally extinct. And some of us, they live on a little bit. Of course, your Neanderthal heritage uh, depends on your genetic ancestry. It appears that uh, Neanderthals split off the common human tree about 500,000 years ago. They went north and adapted to colder climates, but then about 50,000 years ago, uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalus uh, met again. And evidently the two populations uh, certainly had not diverged enough to where they couldn't freely interbreed. At least that's current thinking. Remember when I took uh, physical anthropology many years ago as a student, it was pointed out that if a Neanderthal was walking down Fifth Avenue in New York and he was dressed like everybody else, you wouldn't give him a second look. And no, we don't believe that this makes any contribution to the case of Goldman Sachs. But uh, as to regards your origins and having cousins in the Neanderthal uh, part of the family tree, it will not be the case if your ancestors came from Africa. Apparently humans did their fooling around with Neanderthals only after both groups had left Africa. Anyway, this, uh, this mixed lineage tends to give some support to um, a theory from some years back that uh, bones found in Portugal from about 25,000 years ago uh, were thought to perhaps be from a human-Neanderthal hybrid. And, of course, they may well be. And uh, despite Mr. McMillan's suggestions, his correspondent would stress that there is no evidence that I am descended from any of those hybrids. All right, final item in science from the I told you so file. Turns out the world's most popular herbicide is losing its knockout punch. More and more weeds are evolving resistance to glyphosate, originally marketed by Monsanto as Roundup. The problem could have been forestalled by farming practices enriched by a better understanding of evolution. In 1996, Monsanto began selling crop varieties genetically modified to, to contain a gene for glyphosate resistance. This enabled farmers to spread Roundup, which was lethal to plants, yet non-toxic to animals, on their fields to kill weeds without damaging their crops. But by taking this lazy man's approach, this has encouraged at least nine species of weeds to evolve their own glyphosate resistance to the point where some farmers can no longer control weed infestations. 
Noted Bob Holmes in New Scientist magazine, the solution, as any evolutionary biologist will tell you, is for farmers to vary weed control practices so that weeds face a number of evolutionary pressures instead of just one. Monsanto does recommend that in its instructions to farmers, but the farmers have been reluctant to reduce their use of an effective herbicide for an intangible future benefit, especially when few have experienced resistant weeds. Anyway, we told you this would happen, and it's happening. And we need a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take one and come back and finish up. Sulfur Californium, Infermium, Berkelium, and also Mendelevium, Einsteinium, Nobelium, and Archocryptonium, Radon, Xenon, Zinc, and Rhodium, and Chlorine, Carbon, Cobalt, Copper, Tungsten, Tin, and Sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. 